uh, issue on the agenda, I think, would be a very robust and um, energetic and probably somewhat controversial uh, expert case-based panel discussion, which is going to be led by Paul Volberding, who has some challenging cases for um, some of the uh, faculty who will function as panel members. Paul? So we'll take a minute to uh, recruit our uh, panelists up here. Looks like they're joining forces. And the, the point of this is uh, to kind of pitch some cases, uh, some of them real, some of them kind of less real, uh, to the audience uh, for your reaction, but also to try to engage the, uh, the panelists. I think uh, what we always expect when we do this is that there's, there's often no right answer, uh, and we hope it's reassuring for you to see live and in person uh, that there's actually a good deal of debate, uh, even among uh, people that have as much experience as this group uh, up in front of us does. It reminds me a little bit of uh, I think that was in one of the papers the other day of these old rock groups that are now touring, and it showed their kind of average and combined ages. Fleetwood Mac is something like 240 years old. <laughs> we won't try to do that for the panel, but. <laughs> I don't feel comfortable being a part of that discussion. <laughs> so uh, let's see if we have the slides ready. Yes, I've served on a scientific advisory board for BMS in Gilead. Uh, and here are the learning objectives, um, acute infection, uh, pros and cons of treating very early, and some of the uh, choices in selecting uh, regimens. So here is a. a question. It's a bit of a softball. Um, HIV screening is recommended once for all persons in the healthcare system regarding, regardless of age and risk behavior, true or false? I love it when it's kind of split like that. So it's either one or the other. It's, it's a sort of question that, that doesn't have much in the way of a middle ground. Um, so let me ask the panel. Um, now nah, let me not ask the panel. We'll come back to this. We'll come back. Here's a, here's a, a patient. Uh, and this is one of those real patients. 57-year-old um, uh, man that I'm following in my clinic. Long-standing HIV infection. He's currently receiving a boosted atazanavir regimen. He says he's pretty adherent, but he has occasional periods uh, where he forgets to refill his meds. Went off on a trip, forgot to take one of his meds with him. Um, his viral load is always positive. I've seen him for a number of, uh, but probably about three or four years now, uh, and his viral load has never been suppressed. Um, it's, oh, it's always low, 60 to 2,000 copies. The CD4 is in the 300s. He comes to our urgent care clinic for a rash. His diffuse papular rash, trunk, face, palms, and soles, no mystery here. Uh, his RPR is positive, 1 to 32. His rectal squab is also positive for chlamydia. 
He reports sex without condom use at a bathhouse several weeks previously. He's treated with IM benzathine penicillin. He's warned about a possible reaction given ibuprofen is prophylaxis on his way home. His temperature shoots to 140 degrees. <coughs> so he had uh, a pretty vigorous uh, reaction to the treatment of his syphilis. Next case. Another real patient, seen uh, not pretty much around that same time, um, a young man who reports anonymous sex at a bathhouse after his first experience with methamphetamine. And I, I don't know how many times we hear this, that uh, methamphetamine, at least in San Francisco, reminds this great liberator of, uh, of sexual activity and often associated with HIV uh, infection. Um, he had been seen in the emergency department with fever, pharyngitis, and a rash. HIV antibody is negative. You know it's coming. His viral load was over 1.2 million copies. He was also positive at that time for the first time for HCV. And his HIV showed resistance to nivirapine and nindinavir. So what went wrong? And here I really would like the panel to kind of weigh in and you know, HIV care can be real easy, um, but it's not always real easy. Somebody want to comment on uh, the challenge of taking care of patients? And I think it goes back to um, some of Wafa's comments about, um, about the cascade and uh, to Vicky's comments. Um, Mike? Sure. So this is life. I mean, it's, it's um, not a mystery too much, but it doesn't mean it's easy to deal with. And so what went wrong is that we're, our message about safer sexual practices hasn't gone through. The first case had unprotected sex, ended up with syphilis. The second guy ended up having uh, acute seroconversion syndrome. And uh, even with the, quote, consequences of that, which would seem to be a deterrent, um, I'm not going to say it's hopeless, but it feels hopeless at times because you can only say the mantra so many times. And when you're dealing with something as personal as sexual activity, um, it's hard to uh, change that behavior uh, in any kind of meaningful way except for persistence. So I'm not going to say it's totally hopeless. You reinforce the message. But what went wrong is, as they said in Cool Hand Luke, we had a failure to communicate. <laughs> Well, um, I, I would say that, you know, I would try to view the, just talking about the first case, is, um, you know, things are partially right. He's got partial virologic suppression. He's engaged in care. So that's good. Um, so there's the adherence part of trying to get him completely undetectable and novel strategies, something different to try to do that. When it comes to his sexual behavior, um, you know, people are going to continue to have sex. I don't think we're, any of us are saying that he should stop having sex completely. But um, if you can um, sort of help him understand how he can decrease his risk for others by controlling his viral load, um, how to use um, the rationale for using condoms, and if he won't use condoms or doesn't want to, to really start the conversation about discussing his HIV status, uh, you know, having sex just with other HIV positive people, um, all as a part of reducing his personal risk, but as well as the risk for others of contracting HIV. Dave. So, 
I was going to add the, Mark, the well, <laughs> Dave the, Thomas, Mark Salkowski, and I get you confused. The second case uh, really highlights that, uh, at least in this population, hepatitis C needs to be added to the list of things to worry about in terms of sexual transmission. We, we didn't hear about the first patient status, I don't think, with respect to hepatitis no. C, but certainly it, he would have been at risk for acquiring that infection if his partner was uh, hepatitis C infected, particularly HIV hepatitis C infected. So this scenario of acquiring multiple sexually transmitted pathogens at once is, is not uncommon. And we, we do see this in Baltimore, Washington, New York, and other settings where hepatitis C is being acquired in this fashion. And what we continue to see, despite the recognition, is that the awareness of this risk remains low that it's not on the list of things that might occur with uh, sexual practices that often include uh, use of methamphetamine and other drugs. So uh, there's clearly an educational part of it here as well. So real quick, um, and this may not be what you're getting at, but in the no, first case... Whatever, yeah, it's whatever you want to talk about is so, what I'm getting at. So <laughs> um, For the first patient, one, one question I'd want to probe with him and just understand better is whether or not he would do better on a single tablet regimen. Um, he may just forget to take all of it, or he may forget to take you know, some of it, but I, I think his regimen may be too complex for him, and we can maybe make it simpler. This also may be a guy who's like perfect in my mind for you know, why we do need to develop long-acting injectables. Um, it could be that this is a perfect person, or he could be a bad person. Where we, there's things that we're thinking about in the future for that. You know, everyone's different, and I think we have to figure out for both these guys, especially the first one, the second guy may have just been half a sense, but what makes him tick? You know, yeah. what's important to him? What is, what is he living for? What, what, what matters in his life? And try to leverage that and figure out a little bit more about why, why things aren't working out for him. Jerry. Um, so I wanted to mention the issue of uh, forgetfulness in patient number one, because I never accept that as a reason for not taking medication. I always think there's something underneath that. Um, so it, it could be cognitive impairment. That's possible, but this is a guy who's been taking antiretrovirals for a long time, and he's young, sort of, but he's also over 50, and he may actually have pill fatigue. That is this phenomenon I think many of us are aware with, and people who have been taking medication for very long periods of time, it is sort of a decision that you make every time you take the pill, as to uh, sort of an existential decision, do I really have to do this? for the rest of my life, and I would explore that a little bit with him. Um, uh, and then there are, uh, to find out where he really is in terms of that sort of st stage of having been on long-term, lifelong therapy. And the other thing is, I think you mentioned that he forgets to take his medication when he goes on trips. So that's a behavioral issue that can be addressed by some reminders or stashing medication where you're going to, rather than having to remember to take it with you, and other kinds of tricks in terms of um, just behavioral skills and taking medication that are always worth exploring as well. I tell people that if they have a car, sometimes to keep their medication in the car, keep it where they're going, um, have someone else who has a supply of your meds with you. Uh, as an emergency, if right. you need them, et cetera, et cetera, so that there, some of the issues of his adherence maybe can be explored, or should be explored further to figure out why he can't get to a suppressed viral load. He should be able to. So, so I found this discussion useful, and I think kind of one take home that I'm going to uh, think about is the neuropsych testing that uh, 
uh, probing whether there's some underlying cognitive impairment that might be, um, and, and, and frankly, I, I think that's quite possible uh, given what I know about uh, the patient. I was uh, impressed that these two patients came in roughly the same time. I don't think they are related to each other, um, but it is kind of intriguing that the, my first patient has been on therapy a very long time, including some old regimens, and the young guy comes in with resistance to two drugs that we don't yeah. use at all anymore, nevirapine and indinavir. So um, I think that also makes the point, as, as we heard earlier this morning, that there still is a fair amount of prevalence of resistant virus uh, out there in the community and uh, to underscore the need uh, to do uh, baseline resistance testing before you design your, uh, your first regimen for fear that something like this might be, uh, might be happening. How did I talk to the patient? I, um, the second patient wasn't my own, uh, but the first one I, I talked to quite directly about, you know, his responsibility um, um, to not transmit this virus to someone else. Um, and he was quite um, kind of embarrassed, a bit sheepish, um, and he just fired me. Um, so in terms of how, that worked. I, how I communicated <laughs> with him, um, you know, I... Was this named Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do a very good job. No. Uh, and uh, I got a call from his next physician who hadn't heard very much about his history right. uh, from him uh, when he came to the new clinic uh, to be seen. So um, and w wasn't eager to have his medical records um, shared. Uh, so the challenge, I, I just, I, I, you know, we, I, I find HIV care to be mostly really, really easy. You know, they're suppressed again, and you see them in six months or even 12 months, and they're still suppressed, and they're taking their meds. But uh, we all know that we struggle with, uh, with a lot of cases like this where there are a lot of other issues happening. So one, one more comment. I think we should talk just a bit about the disinhibition in terms of sexual behavior, because we generally tend to think of risk starting anatomically uh, at the penis, vagina, or anus, or whatever it might be. Uh, but really, there's a motivational issue and disinhibition issue that often, often accompanies risk behavior. Yeah. This guy was his first episode, first time using methamphetamine, and he goes and gets HIV. Yep. So, um, uh, so we, we're very unsophisticated about counseling people about substance use, and most providers don't know a lot about yep. it. Um, some have had experience with some of these drugs, many haven't, and therefore don't even know the language to use. And, uh, but a lot of sexual risk take behavior, and uh, a lot of sexual risk behavior, men have sex with men and heterosexuals, takes place in the context of disinhibition, alcohol, or drugs. And that really should be the starting point. Very important driver of, uh, of transmission, right? Let's go on. So this is uh, kind of a familiar uh, uh, natural history curve of, of acute HIV infection. We heard a little bit about this uh, earlier. I think Tim talked about uh, some, of the, uh, some of the studies. I'm not going to go through this in detail. It's an it's an, uh, older slide. But to point out uh, that there is that really early phase when people come in that are like the, the second patient that are HIV antibody negative, even though they have a very high viral load. And you really don't want to miss those uh, cases because those are the people uh, and he was symptomatic, but not badly symptomatic, and often they're not very symptomatic at all and are still engaging in the same behaviors that got them infected uh, and are highly 
uh, likely to, uh, to transmit the virus. So let's think about the second patient. Um, we talked a little bit uh, this morning about uh, would you recommend therapy for acute HIV infection. Um, we can talk more about that. Um, but if you did want to start treatment um, for that second patient, you have a favorite regimen. So let's, let's vote on this. And kind of predictably, um, people are more or less all over the board. I'm a little bit surprised atazanavir uh, is so much lower than darunavir. I think um, mostly they're both pretty popular as uh, kind of conventional first-line uh, therapies, although maybe in this case because of the very high viral load, maybe people want to jump on it uh, harder. Let's. Uh, hear from the panel. Yes, David. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, so there's a few considerations. One is um, he already has some evidence of resistance, and we don't know what resistance he has that we don't know about, right? right? So we don't know what we don't know. And so there could be other resistance mutations, including of the NRTIs. So I wouldn't just be betting the farm that we know everything about his resistance. And it's such an odd resistance pattern that I, I'd be concerned that he has multi-drug resistant virus. So I'd be a little bit... Um, scared of putting him on a regimen that has a low barrier to resistance, and thus I think a protease inhibitor, a boosted protease inhibitor, is pretty imperative here to offer some indemnification um, for better protection, and also just in case resistance, in case failure does occur, you at least have the protease inhibitors that you unlikely get resistance. We do have to consider that he may very well end up on hepatitis C therapy, so I think that is going to be a consideration, but for starting, I, I agree. The reason we also may be seeing from this audience, which was pretty savvy about darunavir ritonavir versus adazanavir ritonavir, is that maybe the prospects for co-formulation with cobicistat with darunavir is looking really good. And people may be thinking, well, I'll put you on the darunavir or tonavir, two nukes now, and then we're going to get a fixed dose combination, hopefully, really soon. And so just transitioning into that. Other, uh, other reactions? Mike? I think maybe some of the audience uh, forgot the key point that there was some nevirapine resistance, mm -hmm. which often is very cross-resistant to efavirenz. So it's highly unlikely that the efavirenz is going to work. We usually think of K103N, but Y181C is a very common nevirapine resistance, but also confers resistance to efavirenz. And so I think choice one is not as likely to work, unfortunately. Um, you know, choice six, one pill once a day, I think David's point about the possible weak backbone uh, is a consideration. Um, choice five may be a little bit overkill. Um, and choice four also is a concern about the weak backbone. So three or perhaps six, maybe. Um, yeah, would, yeah. would anyone so, use uh, yeah. six with one yeah. darunavir tablet added on? Or? <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. You can't. You can't. So there's yeah. an interaction. It's really important. There's an interaction between darunavir um, and alvitegravir where, where you cannot use them together. And I think the idea is, and maybe some of the people with the red lanyards can tell us more about this, but that I think the alvitegravir. Yeah, who makes up all these rules anyway? I mean, it's not right. fair. So, yeah. I mean, it should just be easy. But so why, how long does it take to get resistance testing now? I'm sorry? How long does it take to get resistance? Why don't we wait until we actually find out what his resistance pattern is and try to make sure that we, we do. We, we have actually we actually yeah. do. It showed it showed only nevirapine and oh, I'm sorry. I don't remember the specific. Yeah. I mutations. forgot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who ran for president from the Republican Party after the session? Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle. 
So I just want to comment on the uh, the hepatitis C issue. You know, he, this, he may have acute hepatitis C. We didn't fully right. establish right, that. Right, right. Um, antibody can be positive right. during acute hepatitis C, so don't be fooled. Uh, we had our house staff about six months ago say, oh, it can't be acute. The antibody's positive. Well, in mm. fact, they turn positive as early as a couple weeks into infection with yeah. the third generation EIAs we're using now. So treatment is a consideration, mm -hmm. um, but I would still use uh, interferon and ribavirin without telapavir in the context of acute hepatitis right. C. Now that may be a bit uh, uh, somewhat controversial, but, but in that case, I don't have to worry about interactions. Right. The other thing that's a bit uh, potentially I would do is the reason we treat acute hepatitis C aggressively is because the response rates are so much higher. 75% right. chance with PEG interferon ribavirin getting rid of it. Well, I might argue that with the therapy that's coming, and we'll talk about this, that I can do just as well even if he progresses on to chronic. So uh, the sense of urgency as we talk about what's coming right. to right. treat acute may not be there. and may right. be more important to get this individual sort of settled down on an HIV regimen that's going to going to work. I mean, so yeah, I think it's a more complex that's decision than yeah. uh, maybe it was a year ago. That's yeah, no, I've heard a lot of discussion lately about do you really want to treat acute Hep C these days right. uh, with what's coming? So you know, it has a twenty five percent chance of spontaneously clearing. Yeah, I was going to ask the same um, thing. There is a good chance that he might clear on his own. Well, and, and if he doesn't, then you have a long time, probably even even with HIV co-infection, to wait. And, and he'll probably think you're punishing him with peg riba, so then well, he'll fire you. Right. He'll, you'll get yeah. fired too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one last comment on that. I, I'm not going to mention uh, IL-28B too much, but this is the uh, a SNP that identifies will you respond to hepatitis C, and it's actually a predictor of spontaneous clearance. Right, right. So if this individual were to be IL-28BCC, which is 16% of black Americans, 40% of Caucasian Americans, and it may be as high as 90% of those from East Asia, if he is CC, he's got a up to a 50% chance of resolving uh, spontaneously. Uh, so I might get that test here. Our uh, Ryan White administrators don't like that. It's not, a, it's not an inexpensive test, but this is one place where it might change what you do. Right. Okay. Let's move on. Um, so I just wanted to put this, this one slide in, in terms of aggressive treatment for early infection. You know, I think there is maybe the thought that, you know, with a high viral load, you should treat over, you know, you should really step up. And Marty Markowitz here um, had a paper uh, at CROI the year before uh, last, or actually a couple years ago now. Um, and I think the, the bottom line here is that even by adding uh, more drugs, this is with Maraviroc and Raltegavir added to a, a, a boosted PI, uh, that um, you didn't really get any different outcome. And so kind of standard therapy is so uh, potent that you don't really need to do more. Um, so the patient at uh, four months, he's been started on therapy. Um, we don't know what, but he's doing well. Um, viral load is suppressed, CD4 is great. Um, tolerating the meds well, how long would you continue it? Um, six months, one year, two years, stop at some other point in the future, or I just gonna, I'm gonna um, commit to this and get him to commit to it, I'm gonna treat him forever. Do you stop treatment in acute HIV infection? Let's vote. 
and this might have kind of a twist to it. Um, everyone likes to say, I'll treat forever. Um, panelists all agree, nodding of heads. Mm -hmm. Any qualifications to that? All right. I think you should be qualifying it. <laughs> You're leading uh, us to a because I'm, uh, I'm interested in Visconti. Um, so um, early treatment, we talk, Mike talked about this uh, uh, nicely in his talk. There are some obvious, um, if not yet <coughs> clinical endpoint proven advantages to early treatment. You know, uh, maybe uh, keeping a person, maybe not um, seeding the reservoirs as aggressively. Uh, and a study came out, it was actually presented at the AIDS 2012 in, in DC and has since been published in PLOS One, I think, um, called the Visconti trial. Uh, some people have called this the most important trial in the last, I don't know, however long. Um, and it was even the subject of a large uh, editorial in Economist magazine that talked about the coup of the Visconti uh, trial. Uh, basically, it's an ANRS, a French um, uh, study, uh, where they took about 100 persons who had been treated uh, with uh, acute slash very early uh, HIV infection. Uh, they'd been treated with co combination therapy for I think it was at least three years, um, and they stopped. Uh, and they found that 14 of the 100 uh, had basically uh, uh, become uh, sort of in, in uh, conforming with the usual definitions of either uh, long-term non-progressors or elite controllers. Uh, so they had non-detectable viremia um, even after uh, stopping therapy. Uh, the rate of 14 uh, out of 100 is according to people uh, that know about elite controllers a much higher rate than you would otherwise expect um, so, uh, does this study change your mind? What are you going to do with this study, Mike? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'll preface by saying I'm an optimist, but in this case, let's flip the numbers around. What this means is that 86 out of 100 did not remain suppressed. And if you look at the next thing, the SMART study shows that if you, if you stop therapy, it's not good for you. Right. So, and we reported um, way back when, when we used to stop therapy, that several of our patients who had acute infection we treated for six months to a year had a repeat seroconversion syndrome, making kind of me feel like we lost all advantage that we had about treating them very early in terms of preserving lymphoid architecture and some other theoretical things. So I don't say there's an absolute right or wrong here, but I'm more focused on the 86 than I am the 14. Uh, I think the 14 is not so good to be one of those 14 because elite controller is not the same thing as a functional cure. Right. So the two patients we talked about today, they are very, very different. They're, they don't have HIV around. Um, elite controllers still have HIV. They still have you know, HIV specific immunity. And if you look at their immune activation, it's higher than people who are HIV uninfected. And if you put them on ART, we learned at CROI, didn't cover it today, but we learned that if you put them on ART, that immune activation goes down. So I have a, to be an elite controller, there's still ongoing immune activation damage that David talked about today, premature aging, all that stuff that would be a concern. So I don't think the goal is to be an elite controller, it's a functional cure, which is different. And just politically or functionally, I guess, in the community, the use of the term functional cure is, is a real uh, 
un unfortunate use of that term. It has nothing to do with cure. Um, so that just compounds all the stuff that you heard about the baby. Oh, here's functional cures. This is just basically treating early, leading to a better immune control of a viral infection, but not eradication by any stretch. Although these, uh, uh, these patients don't, they're not exactly elite controllers, and sort of one of the intriguing things is that I think it was eight out of the initial 12 that reported continued to have some decline in their in the reservoir size. So um, I think I think stay tuned. I, I don't want to make too big a thing of this, uh, but there are a lot of people talking about the Visconti trial as as we get more and more uh, focus on, on HIV cure. And I think um, I, I think Tim mentioned it, but there was this news story that came out that, that there was uh, a cure was going to be reported within months and it's actually just that the study that you mentioned has started and then we'll see some results within months. Um, but people, I think it just shows that people are kind of overly primed for, for and, this kind of break. Right, and I think that, that kind of work will help us because not all of these people were equal and these 14 people are different. Yeah. And there was some indication about where they were in their stage of infection that Tim, I think, mentioned with the Thai study yeah. that's analogous that if we can identify just exactly who's the right person based upon when they were caught, when they were treated, and how their responses, that may change this. All right, let's move on. I do want to make a comment about cure, which is a larger issue, and that is there is a danger, I think, in this in the um, exaggeration of the cure issue. Um, uh, it's something we all aspire to, and it's wonderful that there will be careful studies done, but um, I hear people saying, oh, I hear that there's a cure for AIDS now, so we'll turn our attention to something else, and that's always been the danger, and it will perpetuate that. Well, I was reminded of that, kind of listening to Jen Kate's talk, uh, where something like 70% of the people in the country think that the ACA has already been um, kind of overturned. Um, yeah. So, you know, people, you have to be careful, I think, of how we talk about some of these issues. Exactly. Dave? So, Paul, I might add Mark. that for those of you who like to cure infections, hepatitis C, curable. It's curable. So, yeah, you yeah. know, think about it. Just next how talk. you want to spend your time. <laughs> so, is, so is TB. Let's go on, yeah. Syphilis as well can be cured. Um, so this is uh, a patient, um, again, a real patient, a 64-year-old man with HIV infection since at least 89. Uh, we don't know all the details of his early treatment. His records have been hard to get, and he's kind of vague. Uh, he definitely was treated with AZT, monotherapy, regimen that included indinavir. Um, uh, again, we're not completely sure, but he comes to us receiving a regimen starting by an, an outside physician, a really good doc. This is in the context of a clinical trial uh, that contained abacavir, raltegavir, and boosted darunavir. So a hefty um, treatment. Um, he's, he's got excellent adherence. Viral load is always uh, suppressed. CD4 is not so good uh, in the low 100s, although the CD4 percent is 16. Uh, multiple medical problems, again, making the point that, you know, we're dealing with general medicine as well as HIV. He's got diabetes, um, it being treated for that. Uh, dyslipidemia has on rosuvastatin, 40 milligrams a day, and fibrates. Um, and his last LDL was 38, triglycerides were 84, HDL was 41. Remember the numbers. He has NASH uh, with cirrhosis, low platelets and neutropenia. 
Um, and maybe I'll ask uh, Mark to comment at some point, but Nash is looking like the next Hep C in terms of uh, uh, being a, a growing problem and kind of an increasing cause of liver transplantations, as I understand it. Um, on recent admission, uh, his CK was known to be 1,428. Uh, he's asymptomatic, no myalgias. Are you concerned? <laughs> <laughs> Let me say it spe specifically, because I want to talk about the CK. Are you concerned about that? So yes, no. Yeah, good, because if you're not, then I wouldn't have any reason to be showing this case. <laughs> um, and Mike wasn't concerned. He said like this, but, but we'll, get, we'll get back to it. Because um, I do think that it, uh, it kind of helps us explore a few issues. So why would he have, why would this guy come in with a, with a really a high CK? Um, could this be an adverse effect of raltegravir? Could it represent a drug-drug interaction between his resuvastatin and his busidarunavir? Could it represent a drug-drug interaction between his resuvastatin and his phenofibrate? Any of the above, or unrelated to any of the above? So let's just see kind of what seems to make the most sense. So most of you think, yeah, all those three things are, all have a, some plausibility and, you know, when you think about managing this, you're probably gonna have to kind of go down the list. I, and I, I like this kind of exercise because it's really a lot like the rest of general medicine, right? Where if you have a suspected drug reaction, you have to decide which drug is likely causing it, what you're gonna do about it. Um, comments from the panelists. Mike, you're... Yeah. I mean, when not I first, too worried to be. No, 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 I was not. That's not true. I was because when I first saw it, I thought 40 milligrams of resuvastatin, really? And then you look at the ritonavir and you go, huh? Because I mean, I don't know what the what the goal is of the therapy, but I guess to drive his LDL to minus three, because I, I mean, it's 38. I mean, the the target even for somebody who's had a prior MI, which I assume Re remember he has Carl Grunfeld's at my hospital. Uh, but but you know you, you, you it's a hundred is the target so I think he's overdosed on resuvastatin and the first thing I do is hold it for a few days and then restart it maybe at 20 or 10 and then go go from there I don't I'd have to look up the drug interactions but in the back of my mind I think that's the main problem I mean I think his target is 70 with his diabetes I think but the the resuvastatin's not supposed to interact with the Tarunavir. I mean, the, the one that maybe isn't necessary is the phenofibrate because it's not really so clear what the role of triglycerides are, and so that might be the easiest one to stop. Although, with his NASH, I think you don't want this guy to have a lot of triglycerides circling around. Maybe that was started when his triglycerides were really high. And yeah, fortunately, none of those things, they haven't really been shown to help uh, NASH all that much in terms of statins, phenofibrates. We do it, but unfortunately not that successful. Pyglitazone, which is one of his medications, right. has been shown right. in the Pivens trial. They need, they need better names in the NASH network, but in that trial it did help fatty liver. Yeah, and in what, an HIV trial too. Why, why don't, as Mark, as long as we're on the, on the topic, do you, you want to give up, unless you're going to do it in your next lecture, kind of a 30-second 
version of what why we should be thinking about Nash? Sure, I guess a couple comments. One, um, one of the reasons why his CD4 count is low is because of the cirrhosis. It's a, a common uh, linkage that when you get cirrhosis, you'll, you'll tend to have a, uh, a lowering of all cell lines, including lymphocytes. So it, it, cirrhosis is playing a role there for sure. Uh, back to NASH, I think one of the things we're seeing, we can look in our database in the Johns Hopkins HIV clinic, we can see the BMI going up. In fact, the median BMI in our most recent studies is now above 25. Uh, in, so we're seeing an increasing problem with obesity, which for many people is not reflected with fatty liver, but for some it is. And this is clearly complicated by uh, insulin resistance and diabetes, as well as hyperlipidemia. Some of the older HIV medications, particularly stavidine, was also linked to fatty liver but we don't think the current HIV medications are contributing much. It's really more the metabolic issues, but being driven in large part by obesity. So we're increasingly having discussions about obesity uh, in patients with liver disease because of this problem. It is a growing problem, and although there's medical therapies being tested, the real primary answer is to lose weight, diet, yeah. and exercise. So and it's don't a growing don't you think problem a lot, and a going problem. Don't you think a lot of his NASH probably was started back with AZT monotherapy and maybe the D drugs over well, time. Yeah, we've looked at, as you know, the, the long-term effects of exposure to some of the D drugs persist, and, and we do see that with liver disease, that some of the liver damage in the form of fatty liver that occurred during uh, exposure to D drugs just doesn't seem to be resolving on repeat biopsies down the road. Sort of analogous to lipoatrophy. Yeah, I've, I've often thought that. I don't have any... Uh, Right. Any proof that there. Let's let's go on. Um, so I, I guess this is kind of obvious. You've already been uh, as the panel, and I think the audience wow. is thinking about this. <laughs> what do you want to do? Decrease the statin dose. Uh, it's too high. Um, stop his phenofibrate. Triglyceride isn't the problem. Stop his raltegravir. His boosted darunavir is probably sufficient. Um, some combination. Nothing changed. You can just ignore the CK elevation. And I'm not going to. Go ahead. I was going to skip the vote, but go ahead and vote. <laughs> Program in. It was more persuasive. So uh, the two things people like most are, are uh, decreasing his statin dose. 40 of resuvastatin is a, is a big dose. His, what was his LDL was 38 um, and for some combination. So I think we anticipated most of that. Um, I would say that um, uh, when we saw him, uh, we had the additional information that even before we did anything, his CK was trending down. Um, but we still felt that his, uh, his statin dose was too high, so we stopped that. And there have been reports of raltegravir causing, um, causing CK elevations, myositis. Um, I don't think he has myositis by, by definition, uh, so I don't think that's what's going on. But uh, this was an experimental reg regimen uh, and the combination of boosted darunavir and raltegravir is a, a probably more than uh, he needs. So I think there were some options that uh, that could have been um, uh, thought of. Uh, so let's go through this next one pretty quickly. Um, this is a, a case, I think this and the next one are ones that I did for uh, AIDS 2012. Uh, so this is a 56-year-old uh, African-American man, comes to you, Infected for a while, he, he's 
considered treatment and, and is willing to start and will follow your advice. Not an uncommon uh, scenario. Uh, he's in good health, he smokes, he's overweight but not obese. Total cholesterol is, is uh, moderately high, 180, LDL, HDL is 30, systolic blood pressure is 142, his estimated creatinine clearance is 75. So kind of a middle-aged person with a number of, of issues. Viral load is kind of middling at 65,000, and CD4 is 420. Let's assume that you're going to treat him. Um, and we could have a discussion about that. I think we talked about that, um, you know, the CD4 threshold and the rest. From, from my mind, uh, I think it would be hard for me to imagine myself telling him, no, I don't think you should start treatment until your CD4 drifts down to 350. Um, even if I might believe that in sort of the, an evidence base, here's somebody uh, that comes into you saying he wants to be treated. Um, Jerry, would you recommend that he wait until his CD4 is 350? So I mean, it's, and, I, and I think, again, we have these spirited debates, but I think on a, really on a truly individual basis, uh, obviously we, we listen to our patients. What nucleoside backbone would you choose? Um, so we've explored this already in, uh, in some of the uh, discussion, I think Tim's and Mike's especially. Uh, just quickly, what would you do or would you use a nuke sparing regimen in this man? So let's vote. And um, interesting that 8.4% are really uh, beginning to think about changing the paradigm of, uh, of it's got to always have a two nuke backbone. Anyone want to talk about the, um, yeah, and then somebody, jokers voted for D4, T, and AZT. Uh, want to talk about the, uh, the nuke sparing 88.4%? Uh, so we talked a bit about it already. Mike, do you want to comment? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's an option. Uh, to me, we're talking about concepts here. So as long as you have at least two and preferably three active agents, there's nothing magical about a nuke versus uh, nuke sparing. You're looking for two to three active agents that'll work. His viral load isn't all that high. You can find a lot of things. You just want to be careful about the drug-drug interactions. Like we were surprised about Darunavir and Raltegravir together. We thought that would be killer. It turned out not to work so well for probably some drug interaction reasons. Um, pill burden, all that kind of stuff. But I think any, I mean, outside of options three and four, I think any one of these uh, are okay. Depends on how, you, how it all fits. Okay, so this is a pretty conventional case, and um, uh, Tenofovir FTC is obviously a very popular first-line drug. We'll make it a little more interesting just to kind of probe. And again, this is a made-up case, so um, same case. Now we're giving him, you know, his creatinine clearance is 65 instead of 75. He's being treated for type 2 diabetes. Um, and we happen to know that he's HLA B5701 negative. The obvious, you know where this is going. Um, let's see if... Um, Let's see if that would change your approach. Let's vote again quickly. Yeah, so 
I mean, a lot of people have been following this story for a long time. Um, this is like a dog lab in physiology. You know, you change the parameters and you watch the blood pressure. You're famous at doing this, though, Mike, right? <laughs> no, no, not like it. <laughs> but, but I think it, it reveals the, the um, concern that we have that, you know, all of our drugs have some, uh, some strengths and weaknesses. Um, we've, we've seen some data about tenofovir and renal um, uh, in particular. Uh, panelists, would you have done this? No. Okay, go. No, I think I still would have stuck with the you know, I, I think the, uh, the concept we have to understand is, is that um, a very small percentage of people who receive tenofovir go on to develop acute renal injury. Um, and so I, I don't, I'm not convinced completely that his creatinine clearance of 65 would predispose him to have a higher risk of that versus um, the concern, which is very legitimate, that if he was unlucky enough to have that happen, he doesn't have as much in the way reserve, of reserve. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much that I feel like this guy is just piling on risk and that this is going to make it much more likely. I'm, I'm not convinced of that, but that I, do, I would be concerned and that's why I might watch him more closely. This is exactly what we see with this sort of channeling bias that may explain some of, but maybe not all of, um, sort of the baggage, the MI baggage with the back of here, because we take people like him who are more at risk for heart attacks because he has some renal insufficiency and other risk factors. And we say, well, we don't want to give you tenofovir because it's going to hurt your kidneys. So we put him on the back of your, he gets an MI, and we and say we it's say, a ah, back. Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. We say, see what you did? You did it with my Epsicom. So I, I don't know. I, I think that you, you can get burned either which way. I mean, I think I would be more swayed towards giving him a single tablet regimen, which I think people really prefer. And that's not available currently with a back of your 3TC, although there's plans to add dolutegravir to it, which would be a very attractive. And then, and then his creatinine goes up so because he's on value. Let me just kind of ask a question, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. mostly to David. I mean, but my, from my personal sort of recent looking at all this, I'm not convinced anymore that there's really any meaningful association of Abacavir and, and MI because when you look at the randomized data, not to take the channeling bias out, then there is no signal at all. And that's what the FDA showed. Are you ready? Yeah. Get ready. Okay, so I, I, I agree that there is, and I, I've been a big proponent of really being careful about not getting overexcited about a back of your. Um, the randomized data are helpful, but you know they don't follow people for as long a period of time. Trials don't last for many, many years. The cohort studies have their warts, and, and clearly a lot of them, but they do follow a large number of people for a longer period of time. So I don't know that the randomized data alone have a really convincing. What I think is compelling, though, is that there is the signal and some of yeah. my own data show this, where you do see a little bit of bump, maybe not such a little bit of bump, in inflammatory markers in people starting True. on the back of your, that is a little concerning. This is important, though, because the cohort study, they, DAD in particular, mm -hmm. they only saw the signal while the patient was on a Bacavir, so the longer-term follow-up didn't seem to matter as much. So Every year that you're exposed to a Bacavir, there, there is a cumulative, they haven't, I think, explained their story very well, but every year that you're on a Bacavir, your risk of an MI continues to go up. Incrementally. And the, the FDA meta-analysis didn't show did Right, but anything. that's a randomized trial. Yeah, so yeah. I agree. It's so a, there's it's controversy. We should, controversy. We should go on. I think, so I think the take-home message here is that, you know, uh, we all like evidence. Um, we all have to make decisions where the evidence is is not is not kind of convincing on one side or the other. Uh, but I think um, I, I, I like the discussion. Let's let's go on, Jerry. I was just going to make the point that sometimes we look at the relative risk and don't look at the actual risk. Right. 
and so the it could be too far greater, but it might be between one and two percent, yeah, which is what and, we're talking about with these. Things. Okay, yeah. with both with the renal effects and with the possible uh, cardiovascular things. Um, so um, I, I don't want to perseverate on this too much, but I will with just one more kind of. I'll throw this at you now. Is creatinine clearance is even worse? It's fifty, um, but his viral load is one hundred and sixty-five thousand. So the issue here is what's you know, what's more important? Um, is it uh, the viral load, which might make him fail with a Bacavir, um, if you, you know, 5202 and all that, or is it um, the possibility of acute renal injury uh, with a low creatinine clearance? So let, let's just really quickly, and we won't, I won't allow much discussion. I think we've beaten this enough. But I have a prediction what we're going to see. And that was my prediction. Um, that you know, I mean, we 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 now know there's movement in the in the nuke sparing uh, regimens. Mike has talked to us about that. Tim has t told us some of the data. Um, and there, are, I think, there are going to be patients like this where there are a combination of factors that might make you uh, really go so, towards a non. So I'm just curious, and I think it's an important point to make. Um, I'm not sure what folks will mean exactly by a nuke sparing regimen because. I think, as Mike mentioned, um, the results for darunavir, ritonavir, and raltegravir specifically right. has not been very good. Yeah. So if that's what people are thinking about, because it sounds great, I would really be cautious. And we have very little data about doing something like etravirine, darunavir, ritonavir, let's say, which I think would be a very reasonable approach, but one for which we or really have very little data. We don't talk much about. Right, if he was. Um, just from the question that came up about uh, raltegravir, darunavir, ritonavir, remember with NRTIs, that regimen is very effective and was the backbone for a lot of the right. approval for raltegravir. So I don't, I don't think we should leave people with the impression that those drugs should not be used together. But just using those two drugs together in a treatment-naive study, or a treatment-naive population didn't in one study didn't work right. so well. Alone. You can't, I, in a nuke sparing regimen, using it alone to induce to viral load suppression as opposed, as opposed to a switch, I would be really, now it works in like 70% of people. It's not that it, it just right. doesn't work as well as if you had nukes. So there may be something special about having something that works pre-integration at the RT, whether that be an NNRTI or an So let's just see how the, if the audience, you're an experienced group, have you ever done this, we won't ask you exactly what you did, but let's just how many people have uh, used first-line therapy, nuke sparing regimen? Not, not so much yet, but 15%. That's actually, I think we'll see that probably continue to climb over the years. And it's a good point because I think we shouldn't, you know, paint with a big brush. There's no reason the person couldn't be on FTC. Mm -hmm. That's true. So um, I've got a, several cases left, but I will stop uh, when I'm told to. Um, this is a, this is another made up case. Uh, I did this also for uh, AIDS 2012. Um, so let's just say this is a kind of an average-ish patient. No, no question that you'd want to start therapy. CD4 is 300, viral load is 86,000. Um, he's otherwise uh, uh, clean. Um, and 
but he has to, for some reason, and we might see more of this given, given what we heard from Jen Cates today, uh, where the drug costs are going to be a real factor. Um, so he's somebody who is really looking at how much it's going to cost to be treated. Um, and you could twist this around if you don't think that's a realistic thing to say maybe you're the, you know, maybe you're running your program and have to manage within a budget. Um, I just got back from a meeting in Italy and there uh, the, the local authorities are given a budget and they have to manage everyone within that budget so there's an intense focus on the, on the cost uh, of the therapy. Um, so without getting into this in great detail, I'm giving you a bunch of regimens uh, that um, are in some cases the obvious first line recommended preferred regimens and all the different guidelines. Uh, some use uh, old drugs uh, that are available in generic formulations. Um, which regimen of these, let's just focus your attention on these, do you think might have the best balance between being a, a good enough regimen to use and a cheap regimen? Um, and I'll show you the data later, but AZT, 3TC, fixed dose combination, generic, uh, plus noverapine, tenofovir, FTC, fixed dose combination, not generic, plus sequinavir and ritonavir, AZT, generic, plus DDI, generic, plus lopinavir and ritonavir, uh, abacavir, uh, 3TC, fixed dose combination of favorins, AZT, generic, 3TC, generic, and noverapine, XR, uh, or, um, uh, the fixed dose combination of tenofovir, FTC, and efavirenz. So, chance to look at those. So, think to yourself, what what one would you guess would be a good regimen and less expensive? So, people think. I'm not sure about the good part of it, but the <laughs> AZT, 3TC, nevarapine, um, or kind of on the other hand, tenofovir, FTC, uh, efavirenz. That's interesting because uh, the first is sort of the closest thing to an all generic uh, regimen in the sense, and the, and the last one is, is all non-generic. Um, and let's, here's the data. Um, and I don't know exactly what to make of it. Um, but if you, if you look at the first uh, regimen that you liked, it's 1,563 average wholesale price per month. Um, and the one that you also liked at the bottom is 2,081. So is that a big deal? Um, I don't know, uh, but maybe we should be thinking about this because people are going to be forcing us to think about it. Um, I put in... Um, green, uh, probably the, uh, the, the cheapest regimen on the list of AZT generic, 3TC generic, and XR nevarapine. Um, and the two in red are the most expensive. Uh, but again, I'd say that the range apart from the number two, which is surprisingly expensive, is not so, uh, is not so real. Um, not to make a point except that we have to be thinking about this. Um, comments from the from the panelists about generic drugs and where we may be going uh, Mike I, I would add that okay, this is a perfect a clinical trial would be amazing for this participant to really get access to new better drugs at least for a few years until hopefully the insurance coverage could be sorted out yeah yeah there, there's something 
strange about generics these days. And they're usually the first year when a drug goes generic, the generic manufacturer keeps the cost kind of how to pay for their uh, cost to get it started, but then it's supposed to drop. And there, there seems to be a problem with the cost dropping. And it, there's a recent lawsuit that's gone to the Supreme Court of challenging generic companies for being uh, paid off in a way for taking their drugs off the market if they're generic. So there's some strangeness, but the, the number one's cost should drop, and in, in national, internationally that cost is maybe $100 a month or less. So, um, good, let's go on. Um, this is a long case, and I've got four minutes left. Um, so maybe with the audience's permission, I'll flash through it, and if we could have the ARS system turned off so we can just kind of, is that possible? Got it? Um, so I'm gonna qu quickly go through this. Um, another real case, 79-year-old man, comes in with diffuse pruritus. Um, meds include a statin, aspirin, finasteride, sildenafil, and ter terbinafine, um, however that's pronounced. Uh, on examination, he's jaundiced, and you see his numbers here, transaminase is up some, um, Alkvass up some, bilirubin up to 20, mostly direct, uh, albumin and INR are normal. What do you think's going on? Um, and I'm not going to, again, uh, do the vote on this. Uh, acute infection, uh, reaction to a drug, biliary obstruction, acute hepatitis A. Not unreasonable choices, uh, but what he had, um, if I can have the slide go forward. Um, so he had been prescribed Lamisil. He's a 79-year-old guy who's getting married, um, who's got onychomycosis, who wanted to clear it up before his honeymoon. Literally true, um, because he found it embarrassing um, and came in with a very bad uh, hepatic uh, reaction uh, to his, uh, his Lamisil. Uh, and um, my point with this, should your evaluation include HIV testing? Of course, it's an HIV course. And this is the point that, uh, that um, we were hearing about earlier, um, that, uh, that David was saying. Do adults still have sex? Yep. Um, this is from the authoritative source of the Washington Post. I think there probably are better ones. Uh, but, uh, but adults do have sex. And here's uh, kind of one of the points I wanted to make that um, HIV testing guidelines uh, are out there that, that guide uh, our, um, uh, our response. And I think we heard from Jen that you know, the A-grade listings from, uh, from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force are an important thing for policymakers. Um, the, the new U.S. PSTF guidelines uh, for testing came out just last week in the Annals of Internal Medicine. There was a spectacular editorial uh, that accompanied it that I wrote. Um, <laughs> and it was really interesting to think about this because uh, the last uh, Preventative Services Task Force guidelines came out in 2005, been a long time. Uh, the CDC came out in 2006 uh, with population-based screening, and th this is relevant to HCV thing, which is still kind of a disaster, I think, but, um, and it, it took, and so the CDC uh, guidelines said 13 to 64, um, that everyone in that uh, group should be, uh, should be uh, screened for HIV, 
the new guidelines from the Preventive Services Task Force said, and I, I, when I did this just now, I don't remember whether it was 15 or 14, uh, but it was basically 15 to 65. Um, and the testing should be repeated at least annually in all persons with ongoing risk behaviors. Um, and so here is a patient who is way above that age range, but he's got risk behaviors, i.e. he's having sex, um, and so he really would fall into the category of having annual uh, HIV uh, screening. Um, so really important, and one point that uh, Mopoli Das, who wrote the editorial with me, uh, makes in San Francisco is that they're really looking for acute infection. They have a, a number of, especially MSM, that are continuing to engage in very high-risk behavior, screen negative, and so they're now moving them to an every three-month screening and might do it more, more frequently than that so that they can find them. Uh, not that it's going to change their behavior, but that it's going to allow perhaps acute infection to be diagnosed and brought under control uh, more uh, well, what about PrEP? Yeah. Well, um, for... For the population you just mentioned, that's who it's for. Yeah, and the take, uptake has been very small. Yeah, what about yeah. the people over 64, though? Isn't <laughs> that the issue? I thought that's what we were talking about. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. Well, well... No, I think, um, I think the, the frequency of retesting is probably should be driven by the, by the magnitude of risk. Um, right. So I think if people are engaging... Or the change in risk. I mean, right. you, you, the case that you presented, someone was just going on honeymoon. Right, right. right? So now he has maybe a new relationship or... It, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't like have an age right, right. at the end. That's, the, um, the old Preventive Services Task Force right. was all risk-based. Yes. Uh, it wasn't population-based, right. which I think is the big change. And now the guidelines are really essentially the same, um, which is kind of overdue. Well, speaking um, as the oldest person on the panel, right, probably in the room, or maybe not, um, that's an ageism thing that really right. has to be removed. Yep. Um, I'm not going to uh, get a chance to, in this case, go, go on and on and get into some uh, things about uh, age uh, and HIV that, uh, that David has already uh, made well enough. So um, the, the one point that I wanted to make, um, I don't know how many of you saw the footage of the Boston bombing, everyone. Um, yeah, and if you remember uh, that the runners that were right in front of the, uh, the first explosion, only one fell over, and he was 78. And I think that's just kind of a great model for frailty, which is the lack of resilience. Um, so everyone else was able to kind of adjust their, their balance, and the 78-year-old running his 45th marathon uh, was the only one who was, uh, who was knocked over. So uh, this issue that it was part of a deeper discussion about HIV and frailty that, uh, that um, I think we I think I we, thought he got explored. hit by a piece of shrapnel. No. No, no he just no. got a scrape. No. It's a blast. Fell over. Just fell over. All right, thanks so much for the panel. Thank you. So, and we don't need questions. Do Anyone over the age of 65? All right. Oh, totally.